here uh, with you. Uh, and last week we wrapped up our uh, series that we've been going through since the beginning of June, uh, that series on uh, the household of God and uh, what the church is called to be and uh, do. And uh, before we jumped into uh, the Gospel of John and kind of resume uh, where we were way back when, before uh, coronavirus, it seems, does anyone else feel like the beginning of 2020 was like a decade ago? Uh, it, so much life uh, has happened, and so. Uh, but before we we jump back into the Gospel of John, I wanted to take probably two or three weeks uh, to talk through uh, a couple things that have been going on uh, in our uh, country. Uh, things that have been uh, kind of come to the forefront. Uh, a topic, or I guess a more accurately, a, a series of related topics uh, that have uh, been brought to the forefront of our national discussion. Uh, and uh, these issues didn't uh, sprout up overnight, just a matter of uh, months ago. They've been kind of simmering in the background of our culture and uh, really in the church over the last few years and even before that, uh, the last couple of decades in uh, academia, in our colleges and universities. But now all of these uh, issues that have been simmering on the, the back burner uh, have uh, boiled over. Uh, and they have come uh, to the forefront of our uh, attention. Uh, and now there are all of these, uh, these words that have become really, really uh, divisive. Uh, really, really, uh, I guess they, they put people uh, on edge. Uh, words like race and, and racism, slavery, inequality, inequity, social justice, uh, Jim Crow, defund the police, White fragility, black lives matter, LGBTQ, bias, protesting, rioting, reparations, culpability, complicity, power, oppression, privilege. And the list goes on and on. All of these words have suddenly set us on edge. And I'm sure you guys have felt it even more in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. These have have come to the forefront of our culture. And in the providence of God, these issues have come up maybe when our culture is least prepared to address them. But when we are uh, a social media culture right now, when we can, uh, we struggle even to think all the way up to 140 characters at times. Uh, And now we have these really big issues uh, that we need to to peacefully dialogue and debate uh, about. And our our country is really struggling to be able to do that. But what I, what I see in all of this is that we have an opportunity as Christians to be salt and light. Uh, we, we have the opportunity uh, to be willing to listen, to be willing to speak truth, uh, to, to judge righteously, uh, and to address the problems that we see in our own lives and uh, in our society as a whole right now. I love, uh, as one pastor has said, we have truth in a world of theory. Uh, and it, while everybody else is hypothesizing and, and trying to explain, we have the truth of God's Word. And yet I would venture that many of us, probably most of us, don't feel equipped uh, for how to, to talk through these, these issues that have come to the forefront of our day. Now, I know initially I did not. And I've been doing a, a whole bunch of reading, a whole bunch of searching the scriptures, a whole bunch of praying over the last few months, trying to, to grapple with these ideas. Because 
As I mentioned, these ideas started in university classrooms, but they have left the classroom, and now they are nearly everywhere, from social media to advertising to the workplace to the sports arena, from the halls of government to the streets of our cities. They are everywhere. And I want you guys to to know how to interact with these ideas. Because there are conversations coming. They're they're looming. uh, That you will need to to eventually be able to talk with others about this. Bosses and co-workers, friends and family members, neighbors and acquaintances, teachers and professors. We, We need to know what the Bible says about all of these things. So over the next couple of weeks, I wanted to, to look at these ideas uh, that we're being confronted with. Uh, and in coming weeks, I want to look at what, this, the, the, what is coming our way. But today, I wanted to, to step back uh, and look and, and see how should we even approach conversations uh, on this topic. And, and I think that's going to be most helpful before we even begin and say, okay, what, what truth do we need to, to bring to, to bear upon this situation? But what type of a, a mindset, what, what should we calibrate our hearts to be like even in beginning to approach these topics? And so what I want to look at this morning is how we as Christians are to engage others on these topics kind of all rolled up into kind of what is known as social justice. Justice is of the utmost concern to God. We need to understand that. This is not a a sideline issue. God is always concerned about justice. And some of the points that I'm going to make this morning are going to be in agreement with some of the arguments that have been put forth from this social justice worldview. There, There are times when our critics are right. Uh, and we need to agree with them at that time, but also with some, with some nuance. So what I want to look at today are, are four rules of engagement for us to abide by as we engage people concerning this topic of social justice. So here are the four. We're going to go through them one by one, but just so you have a, a road map. First, we must listen with the goal of understanding. Secondly, we must judge according to God's word. Third, we must confess every sin to be sinful. And then fourth, we must lament any and all injustice. Right? So so let's look at these to begin with. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Proverbs chapter 18. We'll begin there as we look at this first rule of engagement that we must listen with the goal of understanding. Proverbs chapter 18, there's going to be three verses in this chapter that are going to be really helpful. And not, not only really helpful in this discussion, but really in any and every discussion that you have with anybody else. Uh, because I have needed to apply these verses so frequently in my own home uh, and in conversations with other people. So if, if you look with me at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, it says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Again, I I find myself uh, being a fool repeatedly in conversations with my wife, where uh, we're having a disagreement, uh, and I can't wait to make my point. And so I'm just kind of waiting for a, a pause in the conversation. I'm not really seeking to understand what she is saying. 
I just want to say my own opinion. I'm sure I'm the only one that struggles with that. Uh, but all too often, we bring that same mindset into conversations with others where we really don't want to hear what they are going to say. We don't necessarily really care to understand their point of view. We only want to express our own opinion. And we can't wait to express our own opinion because we're prideful. Sometimes we feel like there's, there's nothing else for us to learn about something or we already know what they're going to say. There's maybe no detail that we think that we need to, to have nuance on and better understand. But what does Proverbs say about that mindset? How does that verse begin? A fool. Uh, and it's folly to, to come into a conversation with the express intent of only communicating our own opinion and having no desire to understand. If you look in that same chapter down to, to verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And so we, we need to hear before we respond. This connects with that prior verse. Before we speak, we need to listen. We need to understand before we proclaim and pontificate. And speaking without hearing and understanding, what does it say? What's the evaluation of God if that is our mindset? How does the end of the verse say? It is our folly and shame. Then if you look down at verse 17, it says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There's a reality that when we hear one side of the story, we have one side of the story. We see this uh, very frequently in, in pastoral counseling, where someone will come in uh, with a, uh, an issue that they'll need counseling for, and oftentimes what will be presented uh, is an issue, a, a problem that their spouse or their child has. Uh, and uh, oftentimes, uh, as, as we talk about this and, and kind of probe a little deeper, we, we find out like, oh, you know what? I need to get this other person in the room, too. But because then when I've heard both sides, I can start to to make sense of this and start to work through things. And, and all too often when it comes to political matters or matters of of justice, we 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 don't even try to listen to the other side we don't seek to understand and so we only hear one side of the story rather than than both sides and then after we hear both sides after we we pause and think and reflect and pray then we're called to to make a decision and to judge but also within all of this what we see in this chapter and in these three verses is there is a period of time where we should withhold judgment there should be a period of time where you say, you know what, I can't speak on that right now. I need more information. I need to look into that a little bit more. But what does social media always pressure us to do? To make a decision, to form an opinion about something that happened a thousand miles away and that we have limited information about, but we are called to make an opinion right now. And quite honestly, no other generation in human history has had to make, has had that kind of a pressure. 
right? In, in most other human generations, they don't even know what countries are a thousand miles away, let alone what is happening in each individual town and city. But now we are called to form an immediate opinion on something that's happening way far away with limited information. I feel like that just serves as a reminder of our own finiteness. And then on social media, you have the, the pro- proliferation of opinions. What social media has done is it's made everybody a publisher, right? And there's no, uh, there's no editor to say, well, that's true and that's false. And uh, as I've, uh, I'm trying to spend less and less time on social media, but, but occasionally I go on there. And I, I've, I've seen on, on both sides of any situation exaggeration and mischaracterization. Uh, and we need to be wise in what we are hearing and what we are basing our understanding upon. And we have to, to listen and read with the goal of understanding, not merely forming our own opinion, but also this should be our goal, to be able to clearly and accurately communicate the view that we would disagree with like even if i disagree with this do i rightly understand where they're coming from and what they're trying to say rather than mischaracterizing and attacking am i trying to understand by now you're probably familiar with the term of an echo chamber right uh, the and the the all-knowing wikipedia would define uh an echo chamber as this, it's a, it's a metaphorical description of a situation in which beliefs are amplified or reinforced by communication and repetition inside a closed system and insulates them from rebuttal. So by visiting an echo chamber, people are able to seek out information that reinforces their existing views, potentially as an unconscious exercise of confirmation bias. So when we, when we bury ourselves in an echo chamber, what begins to develop is kind of this us and them mentality, right? Uh, and uh, us is right and them is wrong. That, that's the mentality that we begin to develop. And, and when we begin to think of along those lines, whoever makes up the them are slowly ridiculed and, and dehumanized. And we have to be willing to step outside of our echo chambers to sometimes read things uh, that may challenge our thinking and may challenge our assumptions. And we need to be willing to have conversations with people that we disagree with, who disagree with us. And not for the purpose of just arguing with them. You know, what is social media best for? It's best suited for hurling arrows at one another, but not really having dialogue and conversations. And that the goal of our listening is not to argue, but for the purpose of understanding. And again, what we see in Proverbs over and over again, as Solomon is teaching his son, he says, a fool has no desire to understand. A fool is not teachable. But the mark of a wise man is, first and foremost, that he fears the Lord. He fears Yahweh. And... The mark of a wise man is that he is teachable. He's always looking to learn, always seeking to gain knowledge. And we need to listen with the goal of understanding. 
But then as we are listening, even with those who are critical and we may disagree with, how do we know those occasions, as I mentioned, where sometimes they're right? Well, that leads to our our second rule of engagement. So we must listen with the goal of understanding. And then secondly, we must judge according to God's word. Okay, and with this, there's a there's a new phrase kind of put forward uh, in the these uh, social justice uh, movement right now, kind of known as as do the work. And in a, in a prominent book uh, called White Fragility, the, the author Robin D'Angelo, who works as a consultant on racial issues in corporate settings, she says this about about doing the work, and she says interrupting the, the forces of racism is ongoing, lifelong work because the forces conditioning us into racist frameworks are always at play. Our learning will never be finished. Now we're going to discuss those ideas that that she's putting forward in the coming weeks because really what you're hearing there is a new religion that has come onto the scene. And that new religion has its own view of progressive sanctification. Right? Because as Christians, we believe, yeah, we are to be lifelong learners. We are constantly to be learning and growing. But in this new religion that is being put forth, we are constantly learning and growing as well. And that, that idea that was described there of, of doing the, the work, it, it, it almost sounds exactly the same as the, the rule of engagement that I just pointed out. Now, aren't we supposed to listen with the goal of understanding? Absolutely. But, but here's the, the difference. And it, and it has to do with our view of what is our authority. Okay? The advocates of the social justice right now uh, view uh, racial minorities as the final authority on all of these issues. But, but in, in saying that, 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 we're saying we're dependent upon people, the, the philosophy and ideas of others, and that's going to be constantly shifting. But as Christians, what is our final authority? God's Word. The, the inspired and inerrant Word of God is to inform our understanding of all of life and all of these matters. And God's Word is sufficient to address these things. And so when it comes to authority, we as Christians are anchored to Christ and His Word. And the only way that we're really going to be able to, to judge impartially, apart from our, our own background and our own bias and understanding, and yes, everybody does have bias, the reality is we judge impartially by coming to God's Word and saying, God, what should I think about this situation? How am I to evaluate this? We do not decide what is moral and what is immoral. God does. Righteousness and justice, sin and injustice are not defined by any individual or culture. They are defined by God himself and they have been communicated to humanity clearly in his word. And so as we listen with the goal of understanding... We listen, we seek to understand, but we don't necessarily embrace everything as true. We use God's word as the filter to say, okay, here, uh, this is true. This little portion right here, no, that got stuck. God's word is saying, no, I need to reject that, but I need to accept this. 
And we need to be constantly evaluating, constantly judging. We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Earlier in our series on the church, uh, I, I preached on uh, the foundation of the church is Scripture. And I gave these illustrations that the Bible is the lamp that we see with. It's the teaching that we submit to, the philosophy that we live by, the lens that we interpret with, the standard we measure with, and the weapon we battle with. And so the Word of God is and must remain our foundation in any and every discussion. And if we're going to judge righteously, we must base all of our judgments upon the truth of God's Word. Turn with me back in your Bibles over to, uh, to Deuteronomy 17. It's an interesting little uh, passage here in, in, in the middle of this book. And as you, as you turn there to Deuteronomy 17, uh, above verse 14, you might have a heading. And it says this, uh, laws concerning Israel's kings. Now, Deuteronomy, uh, Moses was the leader of Israel. And he's saying, but one day in the future, you're going to ask for a king. And this is what God is telling uh, that future king to do. There's going to be some some prohibitions of what the king should not do, what he should not multiply in verses 14 through 17. But look with me at verse 18. Speaking of the king, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So think about that. The king... As he's ruling, what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to make a handwritten personal copy of the first five books of the Bible. And it's to be required that the Levitical priests would would check it and then stamp it and say, this is an accurate copy. Think about that, students, next time you have to copy something. Imagine copying Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what the king of Israel was supposed to do. But then look at what it says. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So not only was he supposed to to make this copy, he's supposed to take it with him everywhere and to read it and study it. And it was going to teach him to fear the Lord his God. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his, he and his children in Israel. And what's remarkable, if, if you read, and even as you just, if you were just to page uh, through your, uh, a couple pages before Deuteronomy 17, a couple pages after. Notice how frequently in those chapters, God is speaking about justice. About what to do with a murderer or in a manslaughter situation. Or moving boundary markers around your neighbor's land. There's so many things here. And what was to be the textbook for Israel's kings regarding what is just and unjust? The first five books of the Bible. The Torah, that was to be their textbook. And if that was to be the textbook of kings, how much more should the entire Bible be our textbook 
to determine what is right and what is wrong and to have insight and wisdom into how to live and judge righteously. Judging according to God's word is of the utmost importance because there is more information coming at us on a day-to-day basis, again, than any previous generation. You have to do more judging every single day than anyone else maybe in human history. Is this true? What do I do with this? Do I keep that? Oh, there's a little part here. I can toss the rest. We are constantly needing to make judgments and assessments. And we need to do that righteously. We must be wise and discerning. We must be as the kings of Israel. We need to know God's word forward and backward. Uh, And to see and understand that even passages that we may not be really, really excited to read about may not immediately capture our imagination and our attention. It still has significance in developing an overall understanding of what God is calling us to be and do in this world. Now, we've been reading through the book of Genesis the last two weeks. I think we've made it through chapter 13. And have you guys realized how much information you've taken in and how many topics God has addressed in just those few chapters in Genesis? Here's a brief list of the theology and practical topics that God has addressed already in the first 13 chapters of Genesis. Creation, human identity, human purpose, gender binary, marriage, and the complementary roles of marriage uh, by men and women. Now, he's talked about the sinfulness of humanity, the hope that we have in Christ, the grace of God, murder and its punishment, which relates to justice. Humanity's desire to overthrow God at the Tower of Babel. Because what were, what were the people trying to do? They built the tower up to heaven. And oftentimes we think that they were trying to, to get to God, but really they were trying to bring God down. They, they weren't trying to, to live uh, as under the authority of God in heaven. They were trying to, to go up to God and build their own reality and then bring God down. But what's ironic in that passage, they don't bring God down, but God came down in his own time and in his own way. And what did he do? He completely turned all of their plans on their head. They wanted to gather together to make a name for themselves. What did God do? He scattered them and then said, this place is called Babel. <laughs> I do the naming is what God said. There's so much there. And yet through all of that, God's plan is marching forward. And what we saw in, in Genesis 12 is that God is going to bless every family on earth through the, the line of Abraham. That is what we see And that is the the rich theology that is on every page of Scripture. It's constantly informing our understanding of the world around us, of how to judge righteously and accurately. And we need that. We need to know the Word of God so that we can judge according to God's Word. We need to listen, and we need to judge rightly. And then number three, that we must confess every sin to be sinful. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. This is the, the third rule of engagement. So as we listen, we are evaluating. Now, as we are striving to understand, 
we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10 say this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the central idea in these three verses is how we view sin. What do we say about what God has said? This is sinful. Verse 8 says that if, if we de- disagree with God about what is sinful, what's really happening? If God says this is sin, and we say, no, it's not, right? can we both be right? No. One of us is right, and one of us is wrong. And so if we take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ, if we thought something was not sinful and then suddenly God says that it is, we need to obey. That's God's word informing our conscience, informing our mind of what is right and what is wrong. But if we, if we stand firm and say, no, I'm disagreeing with God about this, that God says it's sinful, but I say that it's not. This verse says that, well, the, the truth is not in you then. Because God is always righteous in his judgments. That's verse 8. And then verse 10 is going to put it another way. Proclaiming that if I disagree with God, that I make him a liar. That's really what happens when we disagree with God about sin. What we're really saying is, God, you're wrong and I'm right. And because I'm right, that makes you a liar. That's the, the attitude there. But verses 8 and 10 are really the bread of this sandwich, right? And and you know a sandwich by what's in the middle, by the meat of the sandwich. And this is a confession sandwich. Look with me at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what's really important there, if we confess. And that Greek word for confess, it's the word hama legeo. Hama is the same and legeo is to speak. So it literally means to say the same thing. To be in agreement with or to, to have the same mind. So when we confess our sins, what are we really saying? Saying, God... I agree with you about my behavior. I agree with you that this was wrong, that this was sinful, that this was contrary to your character. That's what we are doing when we confess our sin. But when we refuse to confess, when we refuse to call sin, sin, the truth isn't in us and we're we're claiming... In essence, that God is a liar. Which is exactly what Satan did in the garden. Right? Has God said, oh, no, you won't die. No, we, 
we put on that same attitude. And, and here, here's my point within all of this. As, as we converse with others, as we listen with the goal of understanding, we take everything that we hear and we judge it according to God's word. But then... When we see that according to God's word, something is sinful, what must we do? We have to confess it as sin. We have to acknowledge anything and everything to be sinful. That actually is sin. No matter who committed the sin. No matter when it was committed. Or where it was committed. We need to agree with God's assessment. If God says this is sinful, we need to say, yes, that is sinful. What was amazing is, as Bruce did the, the scripture reading today from Daniel 9, if you, if you read the book of Daniel, there is nothing negative mentioned about that man. There's maybe uh, one other man in scripture, maybe Joseph and maybe Job, that there's nothing negative said about them. So, so Daniel, who is upheld in Scripture as being one of the, the most holy and righteous of men, because he lived by faith. And then what do you have Daniel doing in that situation in Daniel chapter 9? What is he confessing? The, the, the sins of his nation. And he's saying, this is wrong, this is sinful. And we as a people, as a nation, are receiving the, the justice that we deserve. We've broken our covenant with God. That's what he is saying. He is agreeing with God's assessment of the nation of Israel. And is that right? Absolutely. Now one of the things we'll talk about in, in coming weeks is there, is there is a connection, but also a difference between confession and repentance. Okay? Uh, you never get to repentance without confession. Confession is the doorway to repentance. Uh, repentance is the idea of a U-turn. And while we must confess any sin to be sinful, we cannot repent of sins that we didn't commit. And I'll unfold that. And kind of in this new movement, there's been a, a conflation, a confusing and mixing of these two concepts. And so are we called to confess anything and everything that is sin to be sinful? Absolutely. And God's word is our standard of judgment on there. But we are not called to repent for the sins of someone else. I can't do that because repentance is a change of mind followed by a change of action. And I can't change actions for someone else. I can only do that in my own heart. But we must wholeheartedly understand that anything that is sinful, we must declare to be sin. And so, in all of this discussion recently, much of it has been about uh, America's history, America's past, right? America has uh, a history of slavery, of oppression, of, of racial discrimination, and our, our culture is, is crying out against that wholeheartedly right now. And we need to agree with them on much of it. We need to say, yes, that was wrong. That was sinful. But here is also, remembering our, our first two rules of engagement, we condemn things, not because the culture says that they are wrong, but why? Talk to me. What's, the, what's our standard? God's Word. Because there's plenty of things that our culture gets wrong, 
right? Uh, There's plenty of things that our culture celebrates that God's word clearly condemns. But when the culture is condemning what God already condemns, we can give a hearty amen. And we, we need to acknowledge that. But we don't acknowledge it because of what the culture says. We acknowledge it because of what God's word says. God's word is our standard. So we, we can look back at America's history and we say, yeah, slavery was very sinful, not because of what the culture says now, but because of what God says in Genesis 1. Because we are all created in God's image. We are all image bearers. Every human life has value. And God created us as one single human race. So there is no place to, to elevate one race over another. Acts 17, verse 26, the Apostle Paul, as he preaches, and he's going to make, uh, that's a great message to look at and see how uh, Paul preaches to people who have never heard the gospel and have no background uh, in understanding God. But he says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so the the idea that was really being said he said he made from one man every nation that word for nation is is ethnos where we get our english word ethnicity what we see in scripture is that from one man all of these ethnicities went out but there's really only one human race that's what the Bible has proclaimed from the beginning. And science, uh, as scientists look in and say, well, there's really no basis for race. The whole concept of race rose out of Darwinian evolution back in the middle of the 1800s. And when that idea bore its fruit, when, the, when those seeds were planted, the harvest of that came about in World War II. Because what was Nazi Germany saying? That, that the Aryan race, the German nation, was the most superior of all races. That, that's the, the harvest of that idea. But we look and we say, no, that idea is, is contrary to Scripture. Additionally, we come to the conclusion that American slavery was unjust and sinful before God because, listen to this, in First in Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The idea there is a clear condemnation of anybody who would kidnap and, and sell others as slaves. That, that The law condemns them. But we look to Scripture to understand why American slave, history of slavery was wrong. We don't just adopt wholeheartedly everything that the culture is saying. We still evaluate according to Scripture. We judge everything according to the Word of God. And when we see something to be sinful, we must confess it to be sinful. But remember, all that God condemns, we must condemn. And all that God celebrates, we must celebrate. We must agree with God about what sin is and what it is not. 
So as we listen to understand, we must judge what we hear according to God's word. And as we, as we judge righteously according to God's word, we're going to see things that are sinful and we confess them. But then is that it? Say no. Here's the, the fourth rule of engagement. I would phrase it this way, that we must lament every injustice and tragedy. And we must lament every injustice and tragedy. Now, to lament uh, is to demonstrably express sorrow and grief or regret. Lament is usually a, a prayer of complaint. We see laments all over Scripture of David or Habakkuk or Jeremiah or Asaph, or or, uh, a myriad of others crying out to God because they are suffering, because they are experiencing injustice. And a lament is made on behalf of one who is suffering, either ourselves or someone else. And and a lament is a, a good kind of complaint. We're coming to God and we're saying, God, my experience is not lining up with what I see in your word. That God, I I trust in your character. I know who you are, but that's not what I'm experiencing right now. And when we see injustice, we are called to lament. Lament helps us to know how to walk with others through sorrow. How to come alongside those who are hurting. In a recent book on lamenting, author Mark Frogup says this, Lament is how Christians grieve. Lament is a language for loss, a solution for silence, a category of complaint, a framework for feelings, a process for pain, a way of worship. In the Old Testament, Israelites lamented and, and grieved the, the dead and they would, they would tear their clothes and then put on sackcloth and they would throw dust and, and ashes on their heads. But also, Israelites lamented at other times that were not associated with death, but just with calamity and suffering. And again, whenever we see Injustice. Whenever we see tragedy, we are called to lament. We are called to grieve. Romans 12, verse 15. You're probably familiar with. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what the righteous do. That is what we are called to do. As Job was defending his character against his accusatory friends, he says this in Job 30, verse 25. He says, Did I not weep? For him whose day was hard, and was not my soul grieved for the needy? And speaking of malicious witnesses who were speaking against him, King David said this in Psalm 35, verses 13 and 14. Think about that. He's he's saying he did this for those who were his enemies. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. And I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. 
I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. As, as Jesus came to, to Bethany to minister to Mary and Martha, who had just lost their brother Lazarus, what did Jesus do? Jesus wept. He felt compassion for them. He loved them, and so he wept with him, even though, what was Jesus about to do? About to make everything better. He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead, but he still wept. Brothers and sisters, we are called to lament when we see injustice and tragedy in the world. We should have hearts that break when we see others suffering. Again, in, in recent months and, and years, there have been a lot of highly publicized deaths of, of black citizens here in America. And these tragedies have been used by some for, for political gain, but whether they've been used like that or not, should we still weep with those who weep? Should we still lament? Should our hearts not break when we see any life taken? Absolutely. And some of these deaths have been tragic misunderstandings. Some of them have been accidents. But there have also been some that were clearly unjust. One of those cases where I feel like it was clearly unjust was that of Ahmaud Arbery. You may have heard of that. A young black man, 25 years old, who was jogging through his neighborhood in Georgia. And two men confronted him and tried to make a citizen's arrest with guns because they felt that they had seen him going into a house that was under construction. And they felt that he was breaking in. So they said, hey, we're going to do a citizen's arrest and we're going to stop this guy. We're going to take him to the police. So suddenly these two men with guns are confronting this man who's jogging along and Arbery's is not going along with it and man comes up to him and Arbery puts his hand out of the shotgun that's that's pointed at him and the man fires point blank there was no actual arrest there was no trial there's nothing that's that is injustice by every definition and we need to call it that we need to confess sin to be sinful. And we can't, we can't miss the opportunity to do that, guys. And we need to lament those types of tragedies. It's okay for us to acknowledge that and to confess that. We're not, we're not giving in to other things by just acknowledging and, and weeping with those who weep in those circumstances. No, indeed, that communicates our, our love and our heart of compassion for people. We can and should, indeed, we must lament and grieve when we see tragedy, when we see injustice in the world around us. We can't balk at that. And one thing we should definitely not do is to, to condemn and berate those who are weeping. I saw one pastor on, on Twitter commenting on another uh, situation uh, of a highly publicized death of, of Breonna Taylor. 
You guys might know the, the details of that. I won't, I won't get into them now. But, but the pastor said this. He said, if Brianna Taylor hadn't been living with her boyfriend, she would be alive today. And I just said, what? How is that expressed compassion? How is that coming alongside? Those are the types of statements that we have to say, no, that, that's, not, that, that's condemnable. We don't need to, to say that right now. That, that's the exact argument that, that Jesus refutes in Luke chapter 13 when people come up to him and say, hey, uh, these, these Galileans that, that uh, Pilate killed and he mixed their blood with sacrifices, uh, what do you say about that? And Jesus says, don't think that, that they're more sinful than you are. Don't think that they were judged because they were just in sin. He says, no. Well, he said, and then Jesus points to another instance of a tower in Siloam falling and killing people. And the point of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 13 is, look, we don't know when any of us are going to die. We don't know when any of our time is up. And, and the message, what he says is, repent before something happens like that to you. Jesus uses that opportunity to say, hey, look to God. Turn back to him in faith. We, we are called not to, to hurl accusations after tragedy, but we, we are called to weep with those who weep. Let us lament when we see injustice and tragedy. But again, we must also be wise in our judgment. Okay? That all injustice is a tragedy, but not all tragedy is injustice. That injustice is a subset of tragedy. There are some occasions when something is just tragic, like Jesus points to a tower falling. Is anybody responsible for that? No, that's just the reality of living in a fallen, sinful world. We, we live in a world that, that's cursed, that's falling apart. The whole creation groans and can't wait to be redeemed. There are some just tragedies. There are misunderstandings that happen. And we grieve for those, but there are other times there are actual injustices where somebody was morally responsible. And we do need to address it and acknowledge it. And again, all of these things re require so much wisdom, right? And we need to seek and pursue God. We need to seek and understand His Word and then apply the truth of Scripture in our judgments. I, th I feel like we as individuals, we as a, uh, a church and ambassador, we as a, uh, a church in America, we think we really need to, to grow in that fourth rule of engagement. That we really need to, to grow in our ability to lament and grieve when we see injustice and tragedy around us. All too often we have callous hearts and we don't weep. Our hearts don't break when we see suffering. So we need to grow in that area. And really we need to grow in applying all of these rules of engagement. We need, we need to grow in our willingness to listen, to try and understand. We need to grow in our, our wisdom and knowledge of God's words so that we can rightly discern so we can rightly take apart a situation and say, well, this person's responsible for this, this person's responsible for this, here was the confusion, and this was the result. We need to be wise and be able to do that. 
We need to confess every sin to be sinful. And we can't flinch on that. We can't balk. If if we do that, the culture around us, it's almost like we lose our whole witness. When, When something is so obviously sinful and we refuse to call it sinful, what's the world going to say? They're not going to listen to us. So I would hope and pray that that these rules of engagement would challenge you, that they would encourage you, they would give you hope, and also encourage you not to be fearful of these conversations on these topics. And point back to what we talked about last week. We know the end of the story, right? That the assurance of the church is victory. So we can boldly talk about these things. Again, we, we stand firmly on the truth of God's Word. Everybody else is standing on sinking sand. And in fact, I would say that when you talk about this with other people, this, this is, these types of conversations are actually phenomenal at turning the conversation to the, the truth of the Gospel. But with one simple question, you can, you can just ask this. Someone who, who's who's angry and upset about all of the, the injustice in our world right now. You can say, I, I give a hearty amen to that. But what is it that gives you that desire for justice? You just ask that person, where does your desire for justice come from? Because evolution can't explain it. And atheism doesn't explain why you desire justice right now. And why you are angry when you don't get justice. Evolution can't explain it, but the Bible can. See, it goes back to what I said about Genesis 1. Every single person is created in the image of God. And we know, written on our hearts, what is right and what is wrong. What is moral and what is immoral. And when the culture is crying out for justice... They are revealing that they are created in God's image and that they are not an evolved being. They are humans created and bearing the image of God. We desire justice and we despise injustice because of who God has made us to be. So you can ask that question and point that out. And then you can say, That we have a God who is holy and just, who has made us in his image and who will one day judge every one of us with perfect judgment. If you really want justice, that will be the day. We will all get what we deserve. But that's also a worrisome day because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect and righteous standard. And at that final judgment, we will not want justice. We will want mercy and grace. And indeed, our Creator and Judge is merciful and gracious. How do we know that? Because He loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were rebelling against Him, He sent His Son to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and then rise again on the third day. So that all who look to the Son in faith would be forgiven. They would receive grace and mercy and compassion. And all who reject the Son will receive justice. 
They will receive the, the just punishment for all of their sins. So you're, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in that way, if you haven't trusted in Him and looked to Him, oh, I would plead for you to do that. If you have more questions about who Jesus is and what He has done, I, I'm, I would love to speak with you afterwards. And if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Christ, and I pray that you would take these rules of engagement, these principles from God's Word, and, and let's seek to apply them. Let's seek to go engage the culture and have these conversations. Uh, and not just have these conversations to win arguments. But let's have these conversations to put the truth and the glory of God on display and then to get to the gospel, to share the gospel, to be salt and light in the community and the world around us. And may we see many, many more be reconciled to the God that they have been in rebellion against. Amen. Let's pray.